0: Welcome to Your Torah, a 36-week journey into the world of the 63 books of the Mishnah, 18 minutes at a time. A project of Jofa UK designed as a special invitation to engage in Torah and make it yours. This Your Torah episode is dedicated by Nechama Goldman Barash in honour of Nishmat's Yo'atzot Halacha programme. In thanks for the tremendous privilege of gaining the knowledge base enabling to serve women as a halachic advisor in the most intimate moments of their lives. As a Yowet's halacha, the tractate of Nida is one that is personally and professionally very relevant to me. It is the tractate that deals with women's bodies, specifically their reproductive organs, and all matters relating to uterine blood from the first period to the last period of woman experiences, miscarriage, childbirth, loss of virginity, and other related topics. It is a tractate that at times can feel very alienating, since it is a tractate written by men discussing female anatomy and sexuality. Some of the information makes no sense in light of medical knowledge available today. Some of the information is off-putting with its casualness and familiarity about women's bodies, without hearing from the women themselves. However, there are Mishnayot that serve as the basis for certain leniencies within the system that are far-reaching and often help women remain permitted sexually today. Before we dive into the Tractate, it is important to give background from the Torah as to what Nida is. In chapters 12-15 to 15 in the Book of Leviticus, the Torah describes states of Tumah and tahara. Words that are concepts, really, and very hard to translate. Hence, clean and unclean, or defiled and undefiled, or pure and impure, are used in an attempt to translate the concepts into something concrete. But it is important to state that one can be very dirty and tahur and very clean and tame, So the standard usages of these words do not really work. What is relevant to this section of Vayikra is the relationship to Mikdash, or the tabernacle, which later becomes the temple. Only someone who is Tahur may approach God's presence in the sanctuary. A person who is Tameh is warned against coming to the tabernacle upon pain of death, unless he or she goes through a detailed process spelled out in the aforementioned chapters. But there is actually nothing morally problematic with being Tameh, And people are not warned against becoming Tameh, or coming into contact with Tumah, unless perhaps one is a Kohen, a priest, who must eat all of his tithes and sacrificial meat in a state of Tahara. Perhaps to emphasize the unavoidable reality of becoming Tameh throughout our lives, the Torah starts this unit with the birthing woman, who becomes Tameh immediately upon giving birth. What could be more desirable than bringing life into the world? And yet with it comes tuma, which lasts for 40 days in the case of a boy, and 80 days in the case of a girl. This chapter, chapter 12, actually seems to be out of order, for it is followed by two chapters on Sara'at, often translated inaccurately as leprosy, since it's not really a physical condition, but a religious physical condition. And only in chapter 15 do we return to tuma which results from discharges from both male and female sexual organs. In other words, the birthing woman, who is compared to the nidah in chapter 12, should have been presented with the nidah in chapter 15. But I would suggest it is the lead-in to this unit to reassure people that they will be tameh and can always progress through the cycle of tumah to tahara, usually by immersing in a pool of running water, like a mikvah, a ritual bath, and sometimes by bringing sacrifices. In Chapter 15, we discover that men can also become tameh due to a flow from their sexual organ, resulting in two possible states, that of the zav, a man with an unnatural emission that requires seven days clean of the discharge, mikvah and sacrifices, and a man who discharges zera or semen, either alone or with a female partner. The woman, upon coming into contact with Zara, also becomes tame, and both man and woman have to immerse in water. In the second half of the chapter, we encounter parallel states for a woman. A woman who has a flow of blood from within her flesh becomes Nida and is tame for seven days. A woman who has a flow that exceeds seven days, or the flow appears at a time other than her Nidut, her Nida state, is called Azava, and she must count seven days clean of blood before immersing in water and bringing sacrifices. At the end of the chapter, God tells the children of Israel that they have been warned against dying by coming to the tabernacle in a state of Tumah, and the chapter ends. The Tractate of Nida, located as it is within the order of Taharot is primarily concerned with identifying situations in which women and men find themselves tamay as a result of some sort of discharge or flow from the sexual organ. Before we return to the Masechet, however, I want to pause to note that the chapters we just reviewed were relevant in the time of Mikdash, the Temple. The reason, however, that women continue to go to the mikveh is because of chapters 18 and 19, in which we find the nidah, along with other sources of uterine blood mentioned, in the context of a sexual prohibition. Ve'el tumata lotikrav legalot ervata. Do not approach a woman to uncover her nakedness, says a pasuk in chapter 18. In chapter 20, we are told that the punishment for a man and a woman deliberately uncovering nakedness is karet, or to be cut off from the nation who are commanded to be holy. In short, being tame also means being sexually prohibited. Being tahur, then, means being sexually permitted. Although the mikdash no longer stands, couples committed to Allah practice abstinence during menstruation or following a miscarriage and certainly after a birth. Only after immersion in a mikveh or a natural body of water, like a spring or an ocean, are the couple permitted to one another. One further note, well after the Mishnah is edited in 200 CE, a unilateral decision is made, partially credited to the daughters of Israel, but really, continuing a process sent into motion by Rabbi Judah the Prince, known as Rebbe, who was also the editor of the Mishnah, to wait for seven days clean of blood following the cessation of uterine blood. In other words, Nida and Zava and Yoledit, the birthing woman, become completely conflated into one streamlined system in which women wait until uterine blood stops and then count seven days before immersing in the ritual bath. During those seven days, women do internal examinations to make sure the blood has really stopped, and only afterwards they go to the mikvah. Thus, many women wait on average 11 to 13 days per menstrual cycle, and after birth, of course, it could be several weeks. For further information about practical halacha on this topic, call your local Yohetz and halacha. Back to our mesechet. The tractate is made up of 10 chapters. The first chapter presents women seeing uterine blood that causes Tumah and the necessity to track the precise time of the onset of bleeding. The main concern has to do with women who are involved in taharot, in some sort of service to the temple. And so it's important to know the moment at which uterine bleeding has started to be able to retroactively throw out or discard anything she might have touched that would have gone on to be used in the temple. In the course of the chapter, various states in which uterine blood is suspended are mentioned. For instance, a young girl who has not yet gotten her period, who is referred to as a virgin, a pregnant woman in whom the blood has ceased, a nursing woman, and an old woman, someone we would define as menopausal. Each state allows the Mishnah to allow the particular situation and come up with symptomatic proof that attests to a woman's changing condition. Chapter 2 presents the need for men and women to examine their bodies for discharges that cause impurity, or tuma, particularly after sexual relations. Female reproductive anatomy is presented, and most importantly for us today, the Mishnah presents five colors of uterine blood, all in the red family, plus black, that cause a woman to be impure, or as stated earlier, to be sexually prohibited. To give you a little bit of a taste of what the Mishnayot in this tractate sound like, we will look at chapter 2, Mishnah 6. Chamisha damim tmeim ba'isha. Five kinds of blood in a woman are impure. Ha'adom v'hashachor uche karkom uche adama The red and the black... And the brightness of a crocus, and like earthy waters, and like diluted wine. These are the colors which cause a woman to become tahur when they emerge from her body. All of them are in the red family, with the exception of black, which is thought to be congealed blood. Bechamay omrim, av tiltan, basart sali. Beitchamai adds fenugreek water and the waters of roasted meat like the waters of roasted meat which would have a reddish tinge because of the juices coming out of the meat Ubeid Hillel mitaharin beit says no these last two like fenugreek water and waters of roasted meat are not mitame they're mitahair hayarok akavya ben mahalal mitame well what about green that which is green Akavia ben mahalal considers to be Mitame or impure, mitarim, and the sages consider it pure. Amar no mitame mishum ketem. Rabbi Meir says even if it does not render impurity as a bloodstain, as a ketem, which I'll talk about a little later in the podcast, mitame mishumashke would cause impurity as a liquid, Again, very technical concept in the laws of Tuma and Tahara. Rabbi Yossi Omer, lo kach, lo Rabbi Yossi says neither thus nor thus. Now, the reason I'm reading this Mishnah is because today, one of the most common questions I get as a yoetzet is whether something that a woman sees emerging from her body on a surface like toilet paper, or on underwear, will render her impure or sexually prohibited, and colors, as a result, have a lot of consequence. And so the ability to be able to evaluate the colors from a halachic perspective is something that a rav trained in nida does, and in the last 15 years, almost 120 yoatzot have been trained to do as well, and that often allows the woman to bring her question directly to another woman, which is often more comfortable. Chapter 3 is about miscarriage, although the references are very strange and unfamiliar and do not represent medical reality as we know it. Just to give you an example, in Chapter 3, Mishnah 2, the Mishnah reads as follows, and I'm only going to read the translation as it appears in Sfaria. If she miscarries something like a membrane, like a hair, like dust, like red flies, she should put it in water, and if it dissolves, she is impure, and if not, she is pure. If she miscarries something like fish, like locusts, like shkatsim or rimasim, meaning small animals such as reptiles, insects, or rodents, if they had blood with them, she is impure, and if not, she is pure. If she miscarries something like a domesticated animal, a beast, or a fowl, whether pure and impure, she should act as if it is male, and sit for a number of postpartum days, etc., etc. I'm not going to go into more detail. But again, this Mishnah is describing miscarriage in terms that are unfamiliar to us today, some sort of creatures that she miscarries, and the impact it has on her purity or impurity. Chapter 4 describes women outside of the Israelite nation, what are called kutim, And Samaritan women, women who are not strictly Israelite, but live among the Israelites. It also discusses the daughters of Tzdukim, who are Jewish women who have rejected rabbinic Judaism right? and their connection to Nidut, as well as a description of stages of labor and birth. And the topic of labor continues into chapter 5. Chapter 6 describes signs of puberty and the early sexual development of females, including the very famous criteria of two sa'arot, or two pubic hairs, which are synonymous in both boys and girls with sexual maturity, and appear throughout the Talmud as an important marker. Chapter 7 revolves around different sources of Tuma, wet and dry, and retroactive discoveries of Tuma. For instance, if a woman suddenly discovers a blood stain on a robe she wore previously, but has since been laundered and worn, does that retroactively mean she was Nida at some point or Tame and has to count from that period of discovery? Chapter 8 is a very important chapter for contemporary discourse. It deals with the topic of Tamim, literally stains or blood stains, but the translation does not do the concept justice. A ketem is uterine blood found on the woman's clothing or body, but possibly in a way that does not cause her to be tameh or prohibited. In chapter 8, Mishnah 2, we have a very important opening statement. A woman who found a stain may attribute it to any cause to which she is able to attribute it if she slaughtered a beast or a wild animal or a fowl. or if she was handling blood stains for someone else, asukim Asukimbahen, or she sat beside those who were handling blood in any format. Hargama if she killed a louse, she she's able to attribute the blood stain to it. hitola; how much of a stain can she attribute to it? Rabbi Hanina ben Antigonus says Adkagri shall fool. She can attribute the blood stain up to the size of a split bean, even if she did not kill it. Now, again, without becoming too technical, I'll say this idea that a blood stain up to the size of a bean, up to two centimeters basically, uh, can be ignored even if she knows it is uterine, is based on the idea that at one point there were lice everywhere and fleas. And so you had to give some sort of flexibility. With regard to blood stains that might even be seen in intimate areas, in order to prevent women from constantly being tame. there is a famous story in Mishnah Three: Ma'aseh bi'isha achad Shabbat l'fnei Rabbi Akiva. A woman came before Rabbi Akiva and she said to him, "I saw a blood stain." Ra'iti ketem. He said to her, "Perhaps you had a wound." She said to him, "Yes, I did, but it's healed." He said to her, "Perhaps it reopened." She said to him, "Well, that is possible." And Rabbi Akiva declared her pure. He saw his students looking at one another in astonishment, basically saying, what did you just do? You permitted someone who saw uterine blood. She should be prohibited. And he said to them, why is this matter difficult in your eyes? For the sages did not state this matter to be stringent but rather to be lenient. Why? And he quotes a pasuk from Vayikra 15. If woman has a flow, blood will be her flow within her flesh. In other words, there has to be a flow to make a woman impure and prohibited, but not a blood stain. After the topic of the color of the discharge and whether it causes a woman to be prohibited, the topic of k'tamim is probably the most common topic that Yoatzot, halacha and rabbis are asked about. Where are we see blood, does it prohibit a woman, etc., etc.? And then the size and the shape and the color and where the blood is seen has tremendous halachic consequence. Chapter 9 is also important for practical halachic applications, as it discusses situations where a woman sees blood, either while urinating or shortly thereafter. Again, the discussion ensues around the likelihood of the blood being from the uterus. The upshot is there are various ways in which leniencies can be applied in such situations. Finally, the last chapter concludes with a return to the general topic of Tuma and Tara relating to male and female discharges. In conclusion, the tractate Nida is not for the faint-hearted, but it does give us an interesting picture of how bodily fluids and functions were perceived and assessed from a halachic perspective. And it is a central tractate in terms of the halachic practice of the laws governing sexual intimacy, often called ta'arat mishpacha, or family purity, today. This episode of Your Torah is brought to you by Jofa UK in collaboration with women from around the world who all share a passion for Torah study. If you are enjoying your Torah, consider sponsoring an episode. Find out more by visiting ukjova.org. Join the conversation on social media using the hashtag YourTorah.